everyone. You are listening to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast with host Ken Castroco. Please hit that subscribe button so that you will not miss another podcast episode. Every episode we interview an ordinary but extraordinary person on their identity journey. An identity journey is your own unique journey that you have taken in your life to get to where you are now. That journey is not only fascinating, but inspiring and encouraging to others because others can relate to your struggle and victories, which can give them hope and help them get unstuck. Ultimately, my goal is to empower people to not only understand, but truly embrace their true selves, unlocking their full potential and living a more authentic and fulfilling life. Knowing who you are can change the way you see the world and others around you. When you know who you are, you are powerful. Today, my guest is Brandon Day. I met Brandon through the Silver State Striders Running Club. I knew he was a running and strength coach when I met him, and I wanted to pursue running again after going through some health challenges. I asked the question, can I run far again? Thank God he said yes. Brandon Day is a strength trainer and ultramarathon running coach. In this episode, Brandon talks about his life in athletics, working for 20 years at the family advertising business, and transitioning to running his own small business where he helps people get physically stronger, teaches them to move with less pain, and run as far in the mountains as they can imagine. Brandon is a three-sport national championship competitor and won his division at the 2016 Spartan World Championships. He currently resides in Reno, Nevada. Please help me welcome Brandon Day. Thank you for being here, Brandon. Thank you, Ken. I'm excited to be here. So basically what we do here on Who Do You Think You Are podcast is we interview ordinary but extraordinary people about their identity journeys. And I know that you are very, well, you think you're ordinary sometimes, but we all think you're pretty extraordinary. So thank you. I'm really glad that you're here. And I think we're gonna have a lot of fun. We really believe that when you know who you are, you're powerful. And I know through the, all of the conversations we've had over the last several years, getting to know each other much better, man, we've had a lot of conversation about identity and who we are and who we've, where we've come from and where we are now. I, I guess this would be uh, one of my first questions to you is, I mean, how much do you think you've grown in the last five years compared to maybe like the last 20 years? Oh, probably at a faster rate than any other time in my life. Really? Absolutely. The last five years have been just exponential growth, especially the last two, probably. And uh, yeah, it's been a real treat to be able to talk with you about identity. I, I really never thought about it very often. And having you ask me questions that would not necessarily be on my radar and going home and thinking about them <laughs> and then going, huh, maybe that's why I am the way I am. <laughs> <laughs> has been great, Ken. <laughs> I've loved it. <laughs> we do laugh a lot about how goofy we really are. <laughs> yep. Yep. Especially at the tail end of a long run. <laughs> That's right. That's right. When things get really good. So I like to start at the beginning on these identity journeys. And one of the reasons is, is I believe that when we, when we really get into our history and you know, our siblings or our, our families, moms and dads and friends and, 
it starts really early. There's a lot of things that get shaped along the way, and our identity can be shaped very early on. And I think now, like me, I'm a late bloomer. I've, I've, in my 50s, I've really come in. I'm still really tr- figuring out who I am, and and that's a lifelong journey, I believe. But a lot of the times, it starts very early, and so. I'd like to start at the beginning, and yes, the very beginning, almost. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about where you're, where you're from, you know, and I always like to say around five years old. I mean, if you could go okay. back to around five years old, you know, tell us a little bit about sure. your history. Well, I was in school. <laughs> I was born. <laughs> I was born. At that time, I was racing BMX bikes. At five years old? Yeah, from, I think I started at four. Four, wow. And I did that till about nine and traveled around the country doing that with my dad and my mom. And that was kind of the start of my, my athletic life. Also probably where I started looking at performance as worth and identity. Okay. And, and, and you know, it's taken me a long time to separate those things but I'm getting there. Okay. I have a question for you on that. So you, sports being, you know, how well you performed. Yeah. Give me an example of really early on what would happen in a situation like, was it your dad? Was it your, was it, or was something, did did somebody put that on you or did you just take that on? No, I took that on. I think probably I saw on TV, you know, when people win, they get accolades and you know gold medals money fame mm-hmm. you know as a 5 year old that was just like the most amazing thing in the world and i i did have a knack with athletics of of usually being pretty good i've always been extremely competitive so for me not winning was far worse than winning wow failing is Failing up until a couple of years ago was the worst thing that I could do in life. And I've tried to get it into my mind that failing is a learning opportunity and it's gonna happen and I need to accept it and do everything I can to prevent it, but it's not, it's not a bad thing. Gotcha. So, so let's go back to when you're racing BMX bikes after that, you know, I mean, so you've got this attitude. Yeah. Were your, were your parents like at all concerned or they, or did they like it? I think my mom was, my mom was not a terribly competitive person, but my dad and I are, when, when we get together for family dinner or holidays, it does not matter what we could both have broken legs and we would try to crutch to the kitchen first. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. We're, we're intensely competitive. And it doesn't matter if one of us is really good at something and the other isn't. The one that's really good at it will demolish the other person. Like, my dad in his retirement has gotten insanely good at cornhole, of all things, a 76-year-old. And he plays every single day. And every time I come over there, he wants to go play. And I know it's just going to be a beating on my end. And... Every once in a while, maybe like once every six months, I might get a couple points on him, <laughs> and, and that's just how it is. So I, I, I definitely learned it, it from there, and yeah, I've carried that 
my entire life. I, everything I do, I make a competition out of it. Wow. So you go back to that whole, you know, BMX and that kind of thing. What's another thing that would kind of define your back there, back in that early age? So about nine years old, my parents were having problems and they ended up divorcing. And, you know, that fundamentally changed everything in my life, as I think it does most kids. And my life went from having what I thought was this perfect childhood to realizing that people don't always stay together. People's promises aren't always kept. Apparently it's okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Which now I know it is okay. But back then, I, you know, you see the world very black and white. And unfortunately, my mom had a really hard time with it. And she had basically a, a, a nervous breakdown couldn't really get out of bed, couldn't, couldn't really operate for a number of months. Wow. And it forced me to, at the time I was going to a private school, so there was no bus, you, you had to be driven there. So I'd have to go into her room and, and wake her up. And she'd drive me to school in our, I think we had a, like a 79 bug, yellow bug with vinyl seats. But she'd be driving me there in her nightgown and drop me off. She'd pick me up sometimes in her nightgown, you know, and it was just, she was really having a hard time. And I, I being alone with her, if I wanted to eat, I had to kind of learn to eat or make my own food and, and make her food. And, and so at that point in time, I, I started to realize that, you know, maybe I have the capacity to, to take care of, of people and that might be something that I like. I don't think I ever put it into those terms at that point, but upon looking back at my life, I think that's one of the reasons why I am where I am today in a, <clears throat> a career that is largely based on helping people achieve mm -hmm. their goals. Mm -hmm. That's that's really, it's really interesting how that way back when. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't really realize it when, you know, you get into your adult life and you start going and you're just doing something Maybe it's because you love it, but you don't really know why. Yeah, maybe you see the potential of it in many ways, but you don't see the really down deep stuff that motivated you to want to help people, you know? Right. So your mom is having a difficult time. And so let's go to that, maybe the next, you know, a couple of years. You're, but, but what time was that? So that was nine years old. Nine, nine years nine, old. Nine, ten. And then it... <clears throat> that that living arrangement was only going to last so long for a 10-year-old. I was either going to determine that I was the adult and I was going to do whatever I want, which is what I did, <laughs> or I would succumb to whatever, you know, she could help me with and and probably my life would have turned out drastically different. So it became pretty clear I needed to go live with my, my dad and okay. his girlfriend at the time. So we did that. And I was miserable because I went from a place where I, as a 10-year-old, controlled everything. I could do whatever I wanted. As long as I came home, you know, when the streetlights came on, I just tell my mom what I'm doing. Okay, honey. And then I go do it. And I go into an atmosphere where both parents are very regimented. And I also had... I had some issues with my, my future stepmom, my, my dad's girlfriend at the time, 
you know, because that's the, the, the person my dad dated after my mom. And so I, like, in my mind, she's the, she's the reason, you know, why I don't have this perfect life anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember <clears throat> it was right before junior high, and I came home from, like, a summer camp, and my dad takes me into, into my room, and he goes, you have two choices. He goes, you can shape up and go to Folsom Junior High Public School, stay here, or you can pick one of those pamphlets on your bed and go to military school. <laughs> and I remember I looked at the pamphlets and I just thought, oh, I will not do well at military school. <laughs> I am way too set in my ways and I don't do well with being told what to do if I don't agree with it or I can't see the, the logic in it. And what age was this? I was like 11. So I, I made it probably a year with my, my parents before they, they really, and I was, I was such a not great kid to my, to my stepmom. But that was really the kick in the pants that I needed. And to be honest, I now view my parents divorcing as one of the best things that ever happened to me because my stepmom is, I, I'm truly blessed with two moms mm -hmm. and a dad. And she's, she's taught me generosity. I mean, she's taken me as her own son, and she never needed to, and I certainly didn't deserve it. <laughs> Believe me, <laughs> I can be a handful, and I was a handful. <laughs> Trust me, I know. I'm oh, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, then I... I I kind of got back on <clears throat> back on the athletic path at that point. Our particular living situation was my dad sold, or both my parents, not my mom, but <clears throat> my stepmom and my dad sold the ads in the Yellow Pages, and so they would travel to different cities every four months. And so I, I traveled every four months most of my life. We were right. we were going from city to city, and so when I moved in with them, I was splitting my time between either Reno or Truckee, and then Folsom. Folsom was our home base, and I went to school half of the year there, and then I was either in Truckee, California, or Reno, Nevada in the winters. And it just so happened that I also liked to ski, alpine ski, and I happened to be in Reno or Truckee during the winters, so that's kind of what I chose. Right. I ended up being pretty good at that and started competing around the country and around North America and did that for until I was 20 years old, pretty wow. much. So I got to ask you a question about moving around a lot. Yeah. The, you know, most people, you know, some of them are called military brats, you know, they move like that a lot. What, what did it show you about, about life and about, well, I guess, I, what are the, what are the, some of the positives? Maybe some of the negatives too, but it's not very easy to do at a young age, 12, whatever, you know. No, I, to be honest, I didn't recognize any negatives until later in life, like college. The positives were it taught me how to adapt quickly to situations. I mean, there's nothing worse than going into like junior high or high school halfway through the year and knowing absolutely no one. And all the clicks are already set and there's like, what am I going to do? So that was one reason why sports were a big part of my life because I knew 
wherever I was, I could go into a sport and at least make friends because I would be at least competent in it. I am still to this day a little socially awkward in, in larger groups, especially people that I want to like me. And when I'm competing in something or just even being active, I don't have those, those hangups. I remember my senior year in high school, my cross country running coach pulled me aside before I went back to Truckee halfway through the year. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm really worried that all of this moving is going to affect your social abilities. And I'm thinking, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, and, and it kind of struck me probably halfway through college that I finally understood what he was talking about and that I'm really good at making friends fast. And I'm very, even, you know, when I met you, it's like, I'm, I'm good for six months and then I kind of disappear and you kind of have to check up on me, so mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I'm, I'm learning how to try to develop long-term friendships because what I'm accustomed to is giving you everything I have for a little while and then, and then I would go to another city mm -hmm. and I just carried that on through adulthood. And then I, you know, I got to Reno <clears throat> for college. I thought I'd be here four years. And then I bought a house. I thought I'd be in the house for two years and then I would sell it. I've been in Reno for 23 years and I've been in the same house for 17 years. It's the only house I've been in longer than probably five years in my life. Wow. <laughs> and wow. So I'm probably not moving anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> but the other positives were I also had to learn how to catch up with education because you, you know, you leave a French class in Folsom and they're not in the same place as they were in, in, in the other school. They might be farther along or, or not, and you have to adapt to that and, you know, or put in extra work. Then we kind of compounded everything. I got to the point in skiing where I really couldn't be in school in the winter. I might go to school for two weeks, then I'd be gone for three weeks. So that sort of compounded the fact that I would only be friends with the people I was with skiing, but the people at school, they were kind of just more acquaintances. And I never really kept up with them. So by the time I got out of high school and I spent two years trying to make the Olympic team and it didn't really work out, by the time I got to college, I was very behind in social skills of obtaining friends and, and keeping a relationship with them. I just didn't really know how to do it. But college is such a meat market anyway, it didn't really matter. And it really wasn't until I started, you know, down my career paths that I, I was like, oh, I should probably start working on this. Otherwise, it's going to be a lonely life. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I can only imagine <clears throat> when you're traveling like you are, you think in the end, I know that sometimes when you travel and you have to adapt very quickly, it can be a very big positive in life lessons yeah. because one of the things I was always told when I was growing up was, you know, travel a lot because when you have to, when you're traveling, things change and you have to be able to yeah. deal with that. Yeah. So 
are you good at change now? Does that help you at all? <laughs> no. <laughs> I am I I am good at change when it does not directly affect me and my like 10 foot parameter around me. I like to do the same thing every day if I can. I'm very much addicted to my schedule. I have things planned out 4 months from now and the, and I picked a career where I am completely dependent upon like 20 other people's schedules. And when one of them has to make a change, I got to go call all of them and be like, okay, can we move our meeting to here, move this meeting to here? And it took me years to be able to deal with that. And that's my second career, being a strength trainer and a, and a running coach. But my, my first career was was going to, I thought when I, when I graduated at UNR that I was going to be going to San Francisco at this really cush marketing job that I'd, I'd gotten my senior year. And I'd been working at my parents, my parents and I opening up, opened up an advertising agency when I was a sophomore in college and I was kind of the mailroom guy. I delivered mail from Reno to Tahoe and I did some administrative work, answered phones when I was there, you know, on a part-time basis, but <clears throat> never really thought of it as something that I was going to do out of college, really. And I graduate, well, it was just before I graduated, you know, my parents made me, made me an offer, you know, like, we'd like you to come kind of start at the bottom, because that's how, that's how my family is, like, you're going to learn everything, and you're going you're gonna to be the same as if we hired someone off the street which I do love that part. Mm -hmm. uh, but man, the, uh, the price they came in at was a lot lower than what I was being offered in San Francisco. But then I learned a little thing called cost of living in different cities. Amazing thing. And I was like, huh, I think, the, I think it was maybe $25,000 that they offered me. And I was offered like $50,000 in San Francisco. And so then I'm looking up apartments and I'm going, <laughs> 2500 a month for an apartment and I can get I can go buy a house for like a mortgage of $800 a month in Reno. Okay, well now maybe maybe working with the parents isn't going to be so bad, you know, and then just kind of looking at it from the perspective of I know how great my parents are at business and I'm probably not going to have mentors that care as much at the new in fact I know I'm not going to have mentors that care as much, and I probably won't have ones that know as much either. And they certainly aren't going to share with the young buck who's trying to take their job. That's right. You know? <laughs> you're pretty so, good at weighing, even at that, your critical thinking. Yeah. It's pretty good. Like you were able to, and I equate that back to so much change in your life before, which you may not have been liked very much. I know you don't, but... But that really helps you make good decisions at times, right? Yeah. And I've also, I am not quick to make decisions. Hmm. I, if in fact, I probably wait till the very last minute till I absolutely have to, to have as much information as I can. Probably going back to not wanting to fail. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the more information you can have, the better decisions you can make. But I will, I mean, I, my last car that I bought, it took me three years to buy it because <laughs> I couldn't make a decision. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think ultimately I'm thrilled that I made that decision. It was 
by far the best business decision I've ever made in my life. Just um, to stay with your parents. And... Yeah. Uh, not only did I get to learn from them, but the satisfaction at the end of the year when you're going through the company financials and you're seeing how we stacked up against other advertising agencies and just knowing, like especially in the first like four years when we didn't have employees, my family did this. Like this was our team and we're killing it. We're, we're beating big, giant, million, hundred million dollar companies and, and we're, we're taking their accounts and their clients and, and that was always really awesome. Of course, the, the downside of working with family is it's family. <laughs> and as the kid, you, you just want your parents to think of you as an equal. And as the parent, you just want the kids to think of you as, I'm still your parent. Like, it's never not going to be that. You're never not going to be family, no matter how much That's you try right. and separate yeah. it. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> yeah, you just, you, you do the best you can. And, and we had no, I, I think we spent four or five years without employees. So we never really worried about that. And then I kind of got to a point where I said, look, I can't do this bottom level stuff anymore. Like I'm too taxed. You guys are too taxed. We have to bite the bullet and start growing. And so we, we, we got some new employees and they were, they were great, but it was just such a different atmosphere. At that time, I was probably late twenties and the people we were hiring were 21, 22. So it's, you're talking with a different demographic and a younger crowd and the three of us had no idea how to help them. <laughs> we only knew how to do it our way. And what, what I did know going into that company was we would do it my parents' way. And you will do it my parents' way until you know every reason why we do it. And then when you are an expert at it, that's when you can talk about possibly changing the way. And that was right around the time when millennials were coming into the workforce and they didn't do things that way. They, why? Why am I doing this this way? Well, it doesn't matter. I'm paying you to do it. Yeah, but why? <laughs> and that just didn't go over well <laughs> for, for the three of us. So that was, that was hard. But, you know, again, it's, it's those learning lessons of how to get along. Yeah. And ultimately, we ended up with, with three different locations throughout the U.S., we built it to a $10 million company, and it's one of the best achievements I've ever had. And I got to do it with my family, and that was... It's beautiful. But, like, I can tell you a lot of times when I would sit there, and I was so worried about the other employees, you know, <clears throat> and nepotism and thinking that, well, I'm not, I'm not earning my way or whatever. And there would be a lot of times when my parents would do something, and I would say you can't do that in front of the other employees. They're going to think I'm just getting this because I'm a kid or, and whether or not that was real or not, I don't know. Cause that was my perception, but yeah. uh, that's what you built in your mind. That's, yeah. In my mind. And I'm sure I did things like, Oh dad. Cause it, we really tried to not call each other nicknames. It was, it was try to be very business like Tim, Cheryl, Brandon, you know, not right. dad, mom. And, but every once in a while it slips out and then you're just like, Oh, I hope I don't get it for that one. <laughs>
Yeah. I love that you talked about the, and then that business was anchored in Tahoe, right? Incline Village. Incline yeah. Village. Yeah. And then you lived at the time in... I lived as far away as you could live in Reno, Nevada. That's right. To yeah. get there. That's right. All the way up north. Yeah. You lived on the moon. Yeah. And... <laughs> north Valleys. One of the big mistakes when I bought my house was not driving from my house, my new, my, my new perspective house, to my work during work hours. I did it like, you know, on a weekend. And I, we have this thing called the spaghetti bowl in Reno, and it's just always a nightmare since I've ever been here. It's never clear. And I got to drive through it twice during rush hour every day. And I also didn't realize how windy it was going to be where I live. <laughs> they don't tell you when you move to Reno how windy it's going to be here. <laughs> they don't. Let's go back a little bit and talk about another part of your life that you haven't really talked about much, and that's skiing. Yep. So that's a, you know, knowing you and how much you've talked about skiing in the past, what was that journey like and about, and what did you glean from that about yourself? I think that's where I developed my work ethic. Mm -hmm. And you started uh, skiing when? Well, I started skiing probably seven or eight, but I didn't start competing until I was probably 12, 11 or 12, which is really late as far as competitive skiing goes. So I was always, I was not the most talented, but I worked really hard and I had a complete disregard for my body, <laughs> which probably doesn't surprise you. No, it does not. <laughs> you are pretty much all out and yeah. whatever you do, tell us what this is all about. Yeah. So I, I started in South Lake Tahoe at Heavenly Valley and I got my first ever nickname, which was Fish. Fish. Because the orange netting that is at the bottom of the hills that gets you to slow down so you don't run into people. Nobody taught me how to slow down. So I was, it was my first day of the ski team and I'm keeping up with all of them and I'm like, I'm trying to pass everybody and I pass my coach and then we get to the bottom of the hill and I don't know what to do. So I just laid it down and went right into the netting and they had to cut me out with scissors and I got the nickname of fish because I was caught like a fish. And I had that for a couple years, but there you was did just, learn to slow down. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly. Yeah. <laughs> and so I did that for a couple years. And after I'd say two, I started to be pretty good to the point where I was standing out locally. And what discipline? Well, at that age, you only got to do slalom and, and giant slalom, okay. but everybody knew what the minute I could do the faster stuff, that would probably be what I gravitate to because. I was a great slalom skier for five or 10 gates. And then I would just get going so fast. I fly out of the course. I couldn't <laughs> keep myself from going. I was really good at GS as well, but about 13, I guess 13 or 14 is when they start allowing you to do some of the speed stuff. And that's when I really started to come into my own. And, and about that time, my dad had bought me a gym membership in Folsom at a 24-hour fitness and it was about three miles from the house and I can remember even then like I would run run to it or I'd ride my bike to it which you know at that age that is kind of a, a far distance and it sure 13 kind of yeah. why I realize now that the distances we run as ultra runners I'm like oh yeah I used to do a lot of stuff when I was a kid that 
most kids didn't want to do. <clears throat> but yeah, he bought me a, a gym membership and that, that totally changed my perception of what I could do athletically because now I had this activity where I could measure myself every day that I went in there against myself and against everyone else in the gym. And so I'd go in there at 13 years old and I'd see back then really the only people that went to gyms were like jazzercise people and aerobics and then serious lifters like big giant men and very very strong women and so i'm looking at these guys that are huge doing these huge weights and i'm like oh yeah i'm gonna do that like i'm gonna i'm gonna beat that guy at some point your competitive nature comes out yep and I think they hired they hired like whoever the guy at the front desk is who's also the whatever their version of a personal trainer was at that time which basically was a guide to how to use the machines it right, wasn't right. like do this and you'll be better and I just equated strength with being better at being a better athlete and I what I knew was the better athlete I was skiing the faster I would go the quicker I could react so this is what we're going to do when I can't, I can only ski six months out of the year. So I'm going to be in the gym six months out of the year. And I would go down there. And to this day from 16 to 20, before I got to college, the hardest workouts I've ever had in my life were the ones that I programmed for myself. And now being in the industry, I would never do that. (laughs) What I did was not correct not healthy i don't know how i didn't injure myself but but it paid dividends no matter what oh for you in in racing oh yeah if in the rest of my life like I, i can attribute those six years of working out before somebody actually showed me how which wasn't until i got to college and we had a strength trainer at at unr that is why I have been as resilient physically as I have been with all the injuries I've given myself because I'm throwing my, hucking myself down a mountain or, well, no, I'm still doing that yeah, down a mountain. Do I'm just doing it on my feet right. instead of <laughs> skis. Right. You're so, obviously better, better than most that I've seen, especially me, but yeah. Yeah. Well, you're getting there. I'll get there someday. You're, you're, you're easily coachable. So, <laughs> <laughs> so your that skiing early on, putting that time in, it paid dividends, and you skied for quite a long time, very at a very high level. Yeah, yeah. About, I'd say fifteen. That's when I, I think my well, no, I I went to my parents and I said I want to go to the Olympics. I want to do this. That was your goal. Yeah, I want to be the best in the world. And I had a number of close friends that were kind of on that same track. And you know, there's only four people that go to the Olympics in a certain event for, for each country. So it's not like, I mean, that's, that's pretty high. Yeah. You didn't pick the easiest goal. No, no. But I, I, I worked hard for it. I, at the time, I thought I was talented enough, and I, was, I, th- I th- believed it was going to happen. In fact, I didn't even think it was a question. Now I realize I probably wasn't as talented as I thought I was, and I got by a lot more on my naivety of getting injured and the strength that I had. 
because generally when we would go to the gyms for summer camps and whatnot, I was quite a bit stronger than most of the other people there. And so that, I think, masked any lack of understanding of actually how to do the sport that I, that I probably didn't, didn't have. And then I graduated high school and my family and I sat down and we said, all right, let's do this for two years. Let's put off college and let's see if you can do it. You know, it, skiing is not a cheap sport. And so it was every year it was a family decision and we would you know I knew the budgets I knew exactly what I had to do for them to be able to afford it you know it wasn't about having a job I was so I was very fortunate that my parents worked really hard and made good money so I didn't have to have a job but I did have to go to the gym it's like you're gonna get a 3.5 GPA you are gonna go to the gym as often as is necessary my parents didn't know how much you needed to be in a gym but they're just like go every day to part of the process yeah and some of the other things where I didn't do some sports that I wanted to like football because we were spending so much money on it and you couldn't risk getting injured there and then blowing up an entire ski season so summer of 1995 I moved to Truckee full-time and I was gonna live there for two years and in November of 1995, I fell and fractured my spine. And <clears throat> at the time, it just seemed like it was a blip in the road to the Olympics, but it was actually the, the roadblock. It took me about six months to, to get better, and it was probably the second most important event because... I, I didn't know who I was without skiing. I, that's all I was to anybody. Wow. I was just this really good skier. And I didn't lose it then, but the writing was kind of on the wall within a year and a half. Like my brain, I just wouldn't let myself loose as much as I, as I could before. I, I yeah, was, yeah, you have to have that. You have to be on the edge. Yeah, yeah. And I there is no... Just, Turning I mean, back. We went, we sent me to sports psychologists, regular psychologists, and, you know, it was just, it wasn't like, here, take a pill or count backwards and say, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then poof, it'll all work. Like, I, it just never turned around. And I, I remember to this day, I was at a race in Montana that I'd been to a number of times and we get onto this cat track and you're probably hitting 70 miles an hour if you're if you're one of the top people i've done this course 20 times in my life and i couldn't go straight down the cat track i i just made these perfect arcing turns that didn't slow me down too much but definitely didn't let me go faster and i remember riding up the chair with my my friend marcel and he was like, <laughs> who was turning down there? Because you could still see the arcs, right? And I was like, oh, that was me. And I think at that moment it was like, oh, yeah, it's over. You know, I, I, was, still, I was still very good, but I wasn't going to be anywhere near elite at that point. And you knew it. 
then? I think I knew it then. I don't think I believed it. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I think I think my family and I, after that race, it was kind of like, hey, let's let's see what colleges would take mm. you. And at that point in time in skiing, if you went to a college, your career was over. They didn't they didn't take people onto the the U.S. team from there. You you weren't going to the Olympics if you had gone to college. That was that was where that was the old junkyard where old old skiers went who were 17, 18, 19, and 20, right? right? It's not like that now, fortunately, but because it's a great system to go through. Yeah. You talk about identity, and you said, I didn't really know if I wasn't a skier, I didn't know who I really was. Yeah. When did you figure that out? When was that something that was apparent to you? That took me probably six or seven years to figure out who I was outside of that. Because I went to UNR and I got a scholarship, so I was skiing, but I didn't have a goal in skiing other than keep getting money for college. That was that was the goal. And you're competitive. Yeah, but even then, I wasn't. I wasn't. I my head just wasn't in it. I still worked really hard, but you know, I I knew that the goal that I was I had gone after was over. And my issues with failure prevented me from enjoying skiing at that point. And still to this day, like I haven't skied in 25 years. Wow. Yeah. And it took me many years to realize that, okay, yeah, I didn't get the goal. And in the strictest sense, it's a failure. But look at all the things I got to do. Look at all the places I went. Look at all the mountains I ski. I skied for free for like six years I never paid for lift tickets and like you know I got to go to the best mountains all over the place yeah. and you know I couldn't get out of my head for a long time all through college you know and I ended up quitting skiing my sophomore year in college and never never picked it up again wow and it was just done and that is that is very much like me once I make a decision I just boom I'm going to the next right. thing and and I don't really yeah. I don't really look back. <clears throat> so I want to get to the running part because it's your life now. It's what you do. But before we go there, now you were working at your parents' firm. Mm -hmm. And the question I have for you is what got you – There's that, so, so the gap between skiing and running – yeah. Explain that a little bit. Ironically, there's not that much. Skiing is the reason why I ran. Interesting. Explain that. I ran in high school and in junior high to stay in shape for skiing. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> when I broke my back, I saw this documentary about a race called Western States 100. I had no idea that people, I knew about marathons. I didn't know people ran farther than that. I didn't know people even ran on dirt. I just, I knew cross country runners ran on dirt for like three miles, but I didn't know you could, I didn't even know there were trails in mountains. Like <laughs> there are trails on a ski resort. I just figured it was, if it wasn't a Jeep road, like right. who's gonna go into a mountain and make a 60 mile long trail? <laughs> what kind of 
<laughs> idiocy is that? And now we have a friend that actually does it, right? right. <laughs> like, that's her job. And I was sitting in my bed, and I was really having a hard time moving at that point in time. I'd been told that I wasn't going to walk right again. I was never going to ski again. And I remember watching this. This It was like on PBS, I think. And I just remember thinking, how, how many days is that going to take these people? Because, you know, the intro, like the intro slowed down in my head to like, okay, I've never seen anyone run on the freeway. And I've commuted from Folsom <laughs> to Squaw Valley, which is now Palisades, like a million times. I've never seen anyone running. So where do these people run? <laughs> and then... I get done with it, and it's like, not only do they not sleep, they do it in 17, 18 hours, like the fastest people, and the slowest people still do it in 30 hours. And I just remember being blown away. Like, I sat right there. If I'm ever able to run again, I want to do that. I want to try to do that. So fast forward to... And this is the Western States 100. Yeah. Yeah, okay. and this is in 1995. Okay. Okay. So fast forward to 2008. I've been working for about six years at my at the family business. And I wasn't really doing much in the way of athletics. I still worked out, but m- most of my free time was occupied by, quite honestly, going to Burning Man. I'd spend eight months out of the year planning for the next year and you know and I was sitting at my desk and a friend of mine sent out one of those charity 5k things like hey you know I'm running this thing can you send me a couple bucks you know I'm trying to get $500 or something for it like okay I'll do that And, and then I hit send and I remember thinking I used to be the one that does all these things like I used to be very active and I haven't been active in a long time. I was still fit and I was strong, but I wasn't active. I was sedentary for the most part, other than going to the gym. And as I normally do, I just made the gigantic leap from you don't run anymore to I'm going to run this race next year. So I at my computer, got onto the Western States 100 website go hit register and it's like oh have you qualified oh now you're going to be part of a lottery and i'm thinking you're kidding me (laughs) you have to actually qualify for this there's lots of people that want to do this so many that there's a lottery and i remember thinking what kind of stupid people are there on earth (laughs) like who actually wants to do this the only reason why i wanted to do it is because of some thought i had when i was injured what is that 13 years ago or whatever like i didn't i didn't know anything about running distances i'd never run a half marathon but i was like i want to do this so i go well i've heard of this race so surely any race that i haven't heard of is not as hard as this race that has a lottery to get into it right so i google 100 mile trail races near me Incline Village, Nevada. <laughs> and what pops up? The Tahoe Rim Trail 100. And I go, great. I don't even have to travel. <laughs> so I go on there and 
oh man, I got to qualify for this one too, but there's no lottery. So I'm like, okay, well, what's the qualification? And it was like, run 50 miles. I think at that time it was run 50 miles in maybe 14 hours or 12 hours or something. I don't know. It was something that seemed like it was going to be really hard. And I was going (laughs) to actually have to commit to this sport a little longer than I thought, you know? So I thought, okay, well, we should probably try a trail race first and just, just one, just to see if it's even something that I like. And, you know, I ran with my dogs on Peavine, the mountain in Reno that we, that we have. And I Googled again and I come up with a race on Peavine that the Silver State Striders put on called the Silver State 50-50. And I'm going, man, how do they run 50 miles on Peavine? That's got to be horrible. There's no trees. <laughs> and it is horrible. There aren't any trees. And so I signed up for the half marathon that year. I tried to train for it. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm just like, you just go out and run as far as you can every day. Like every day that you choose to run, right? So I I started it. I, I remember the, the way the, the half marathon course is, it's basically uphill for six and a half miles and then it's downhill for six and a half miles. And, and what I knew was I could hammer downhills. You know, at that, at that age, I could still do six minute miles downhill for a couple miles. And so I'm just like lollygagging up to the top thinking I'm going to make all my time up from the second we start going downhill. Cause they're, I'm looking at these people, I'm looking at their bodies, I'm looking at how they're running and how they're suffering. And I'm like, you, you cannot beat me. I was right for four miles <laughs> and then <laughs> the wheels fell off and oh God, I fell down like numerous times cause my legs were just jello and not working. And I remember I got through the finish and I was so proud of myself for finishing <laughs> and it was so hard that I realized then that was 2008, this is probably not happening next year. I am probably gonna have to put some time into this because the 13 miles was hard enough. And I was at least smart enough to know that it's not like I could run that pace for another 87 miles, like I, I knew that. So after that, I joined a, a local running club called Reno Running and Fitness that I found, I think I found them on the internet, and they ran on concrete down at Sparks Marina on like Tuesdays, I think, and Saturdays they ran on the Ditch Trail, which is just this flat fire road in Reno. And for some reason I thought that would prepare me for a mountain race. <clears throat> and, <laughs> and I ran with them for two years I completed the Tahoe Rim Trail 50K in, I think, 2009. I got injured in 2010. Uh, my knee, I've had, I've had a number of knee injuries, and that was, that was the first one I had when I was trail running. In 2011, I completed my first 50 mile, the American River 50 mile. And again, I was still pretty naive. I did hire a coach that year which was one of the best things I've ever done in running because I learned how to not do a lot of stuff and how to correctly do it. But also I learned the difference between 
training as an elite athlete in the sport and training as somebody who has a 60-hour-a-week job relationship and dogs and can't spend six days a week running and, you know. And so then I'm back at the Silver State 50-50. It's going to be my first mountain 50-miler. I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm like a month off of my last 50, and I did that in 11 hours, so this is probably going to take me 11 hours. Not realizing there's a difference between a 10,000-foot climbing 50-mile and a 3,000-foot climbing 50-mile. <laughs> and I still hadn't learned that I can't, in fact, make up all my time on the downhills. This race basically is 12 miles up and then 6 miles down and then kind of traverses through a lot of flats and then it's just all climbing the last you know quarter. I think by mile 19, I had completely blown myself up, like to the point where there was no more running. <laughs> and I'm, this is what, my, we, we run that race in May, so I'm two months from my first 100 mile, and I leave the aid station at River Bend, and I'm hurting so bad, and this is probably mile 33, I pull out my phone and I start writing an email to the race director of the 100 mile race, telling him I am not man enough to do it and I need to bump down to the 50 mile <laughs> because this is horrible and I hate this. Little did I know the RD of that race was the aid station captain at the top of the hill I'm going to <laughs> in the 50-50 and he gets there and I was like, oh, hey, I was just writing you an email. I'm not going to be able to do the 100 because this is the hardest crap I've ever done in my life. (laughs) In typical George fashion, he's just like, have a quesadilla and get out of my aid station and get down the road. That would be George Ruiz, everybody. (laughs) And so I got across the finish line, and I still didn't run with the Striders. I I knew them only from Western States, Forest Hill, but I didn't really run with them. I think I was dead last. And I'm laying down on the, on the finish line, like five feet from the finish line. I didn't even walk away from the finish line. At the time, our kind of our fearless leader at the time, Lon Monroe, came up and starts cussing me out, <laughs> telling me to get off his finish line. And I just looked at him. And in another bit of irony, he was my ski coach when I was younger. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing here? He's like, this is my race and you're on my finish line. And I was like, I'm so sorry. Can I go over here, you know? After that, I, I, that's when I finally realized, oh my gosh, there's, there's people that run trails in Reno and me running on the ditch trail wasn't gonna do anything for me because it sure didn't do anything for me for this, this race. I started running with the Striders right after that. Went to the Tahoe or TRT 100 that year undertrained but healthy and I had the best 63 miles of my life (laughs) and the worst probably 25 miles of my life and then the final seven miles which was the downhill from Snow Valley peak to the finish in Spooner was hurt a lot but was amazing I probably walked for 25 miles straight there was no running at all and then I got to the top, and again, like running is so mental, ultra running is so mental, I, I knew it was all downhill to the finish. And it was like, well, I can do that. 
I don't have to deal with these hills anymore. I just get to roll downhill. <laughs> Gravity will do all the work for me, right? And finish that. And, and that was the first time I realized the amount of difficulty in running all day, all night. And for that, that time, that was running the rest of the next morning till probably 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. How many hours total? Probably, I think it was 31.50, something like that. 31 hours, 50 minutes. That was just the hardest physical thing I'd ever done in my life. And, and out of that, you were addicted or not right then. I never wanted to run again. You had hung it up. Oh yeah. I probably hung it up at 64 miles, but I'm also not going to, well, I have quit, but I wasn't going to quit then. But like, Almost everyone I know that's done a hundred, three days later, I'm sitting there going, you know, I could have done so many things better. I could have eaten this. I could have run slower here. I could, and then a week later, I don't know that I was actually hurting that bad, even though you were, (laughs) but you start blocking that out. And then, you know, I'm not really one, like I don't do it for the buckle or the metal, but you, you, the buckle might catch your eye and you go, Oh yeah, there's an there's another one I could get that's different color. Yeah, maybe I'll do that. And but I I did do a hundred, and that meant I qualified for Western States. So then the plan became that's what I'm gonna do. So I put in for Western States that next year. I went down to the to the draw the lottery draw. And I bought my tickets to try to get the extra, and I didn't make it. And the two guys that I drove down there did. And it's like, man, not only did I drive you guys down here, but you two got in and I didn't get in. And so we're driving back, and one of our our Strider members, John Trent, he called me or emailed me, and and he said, hey, you've put enough time in that you qualify for our, our little lottery you know, because I had always volunteered at, at Forest Hill and, and stuff. I was like, okay, I don't really know what that means. But back then, we didn't have very many people that would qualify. So it was it was myself and, and another guy named Andy. And we showed up for a run, I want to say December, early December. And somebody has a hat and there's some pieces of paper in it. It wasn't a big hoopla. There's only two pieces of paper. I got a 50-50 shot. They pull my name out. It was like, I won. I can't believe I won. And then I immediately look at Andy and I kind of look at myself and I'm going, okay, he's a really good runner. Like, there's no way he's not finishing this race. They just gave me this wonderful gift on a platter that literally if you're in the the lottery is like a 2% chance of getting in. And I've run 100, and it didn't go very well. (laughs) And I did it in 31 hours and whatever, 50 minutes, and you only get 30 hours for Western States. So I'm immediately freaking out. But, you know, it it turned out to be one of the crowning athletic achievements of my life because I, I was injured at the time. I had plantar fasciitis, and that took me until... February to get over so I had no training for about three months and then in February it was like okay 
we got to pull out all the stops, do everything I can. And I fortunately had all of the striders to help me and pull me along. And I'm still really learning what running was about. I was very well read in the sport and I had paid a lot of money to have a lot of coaches help me for the three or four years prior. But it's a little different when everybody in your group is looking at you like, hey, we just gave you this. Pressure's on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how Western States happened for me. And that's really all the start of what you do now. And Yeah. If you were to go back and look at some of the things you learned back to that point, and obviously when we started, you said that the last five years have probably been the most growth you've ever had personally. Yeah. What did your upbringing, identity, what did that have to do with some of those decisions that you made in running? So when I said that choosing my family business over the other opportunity I had was probably the best decision I ever made, not only did I learn a lot about business from my parents, the other thing my parents have always done is they have figured out how to make their hobbies and activities businesses so during my time at the company my parents had a race car company an offshore racing company they decided to take up uh, marksman shooting and became like national record holders and had companies for it and they would always figure out a way to make the hobby pay for itself they were going to get rich off of it, but it would, you know, if you spent $5,000, the company would make $5,001. And so in 2000 and the year after Western States, I realized, you know, I have a particular way of looking at how to run these races from the lens of not having time to put in 20 or 30 hours a week of running like the people that win these races do. And at that time, there weren't very many coaches, unless you were a really good runner, and that's how you were subsidizing all the money you were spending on it. Because at that time, you weren't, no one was a professional ultra runner. You were a, it was a really big hobby that you spent a lot of time on, and then you had a job that paid for it, usually. Right. You might have a sponsor that gave you shoes, but, you know. I thought, well, I can't become a coach, an ultra coach now, because I only had maybe five of them under my belt, well, maybe seven or eight under my belt. But what can I do? Well, I can train people to get stronger. I've done that my entire life. It's not terribly difficult to get a personal training certification. So I'm going to train runners to get stronger. And that will pay for the, I think I was spending like $3,000 a year running. So I go, well, how many clients would I need to have? Okay, great. I can, I can make this work. So that was really how my second career started was just to pay for running. And that was because of what I'd seen my parents do a number of times. And then within two years, it became clear that a, I was probably meant to do that, but B, my days were very much numbered with with the family business. And it just kind of snowballed over about a two-year period to where I was able to make the decision to 
to leave the business in 2017 for good and open up my own business that was taking care of runners and taking care of people learning how to get strong. And it was, yeah, I, I owe it all to my parents just not even teaching me. It wasn't like they would sit down and be like, this is what we're going to do. I just saw it and go, huh, you're making money while you're driving your boat. That's pretty cool. How do I make money while I run? Yeah. And now I'm doing it. Yeah. So. Yeah. And you've been, in, you know, more than that too, what I see in you is that you've been incredibly generous with your time. Yeah. And the money hasn't been the main thing for you. No. It's, it's never the main thing. I've never seen that. I've always seen that you're just so excited for people to achieve their goals or yeah. I mean, even the smallest things. Oh, yeah. And that shows. I want to get to your training and what you do a little bit more. I want to ask you more questions about that. But what I'd like you to do is tell me, what are the three biggest events in your life, life-changing events, that got you where you are today? Well, the two I've touched on would be my, my parents divorcing and learning that I genuinely like making people happy and helping them achieve their goals. I'll actually give you four. Hurting my back and realizing that I'm going to have to adapt because what I thought my life was going isn't, gonna, isn't where it's going to be. Going to work for my parents for my dad and my stepmom and my mom passing away. That very much coincided with my departure from the family business because I think that's the first time I ever realized how fragile life is. You know, my mom was in her early 60s and she passed away from lung cancer and I didn't I didn't really I didn't know what to do then. It was like what is life all the things that I'm doing in life, I don't feel like they're who I am. I, I felt very much up to that point that I was, I was very successful in life by the standards of how much you make. And I had a family and, and dogs and, you know, but I didn't really do a whole bunch for myself. It was more, well, I'm good at this, so I'll just do this. Mm -hmm. Or... You know, where do you want to be in the company, Brandon? I don't know, wherever you put me, wherever you think I'll be good, because I'll just work and I'll and I'll do it, you know? And Do you think you were still searching for yourself back oh, then? Oh yeah. Absolutely. I'm still searching for myself now. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that somebody who's actually trying to be within themselves ever stops. Because they think you're always changing. Like every event that you have changes that direction that you're going out towards space you know you meet somebody and it shifts by a degree and now all of a sudden five years from now you thought you're going to be over here and you're on another planet right yeah but i remember having a conversation with my mom and we were we didn't have your traditional mother-son relationship it was it was more friends than, than anything. And at the end of her life, I was very much the financial caregiver for her. And I remember talking to her when she was just before she went into hospice and, and 
they put her basically into a coma, you know, with morphine. And I said, what are you, what are you looking forward to? And, and she said, I'm looking forward to seeing my parents, you know, in heaven and telling them I love them and that I understand. And I was like, what does that mean? And the last time I saw my mom, I knew because she was in a coma and it's like, I understand. You did your best. Just like I'm doing my best. And I love you for it. And I'm sorry that I couldn't acknowledge that and that I held some grudges, you know? Yeah. But I knew that was the last time I was going to see her. I didn't know how much that would affect me. And it, it's, I'm still dealing with it, you know? Yeah. And I know you know from, yeah. the, from yeah. your, your parents. And I, I remember a couple months later thinking, I think it's time to change everything. Wow. You know, I think I was happy, but I wasn't necessarily doing the things that made me happy. Right. You know, and I was, I was still healthy and active, but I wanted to lead a different life. Right. And I knew, unfortunately, that meant the marriage I was in probably wasn't suiting either of us, but it definitely wasn't suiting me. The job I was in, how am I going to leave my parents? They gave me everything I have, right? This is a legacy business. Like, there was no doubt that they wanted me to take this thing over. Right. And that made me feel like a, a crappy son, you know. But I just knew that I was meant to do other things than go to work and sit at a desk all day and not help people. Because the one thing I didn't like about my job, which had nothing to do with my company, is none of my clients appreciated what I did. None of my clients appreciated what our company did. We were just simply middlemen in their eyes and we were asking for money for advertising. They didn't realize like, but I'm working really, really hard for you. And that you know, million dollars you gave me in advertising returned one point three million dollars like 30 percent roi like aren't you happy about that and all they were happy about was when the bill went down right you know and i get it i'm now now being a small business owner i see the other side i, I understand yeah. that it didn't have anything to do with me but but on the other hand like what kind of joy and that this is one of the questions i was going to ask you about your clients right now you know, you're, what is one of the, and, and this is a great contrast to that. And it's how I think we find what we really want to do in life. It's what really gives us energy and joy. Yeah. Happiness is fleeting. There's something about joy. Your clients give you a lot of joy. They give you a lot of heartache. I'm probably one of those guys that gives you a heartache, <laughs> but your clients give you a lot of joy too. And oh, so yeah. what's one of the most joyful things you've ever experienced? Just pick a one or one thing that you can think of right off the top of your head that's one of the most joyful things you've ever done with a client in, in running. Watching you run your first mile <laughs> since, uh, since you were injured. Yeah, you, I, you know, I, seeing you for so many years 
be on the sidelines. And then we had that <laughs> random car ride to Western States where John and Casey bailed on you. <laughs> and you're like, well, I'll have Brandon. And I'm completely lost in life right then. And you're like, I just, do you think I could walk 100 miles? Because I can't run. And I just remember thinking, of course you can run. Like, we can fix that. That's, that's not the problem. And then you, you believing in me enough to help you and getting the added benefit of your wife, helping your wife, you know, and we started strength training. And I remember after that first session telling you like, yeah, dude, you're not gonna be broken for long. Like we, we, we can fix all of these body issues your head. Now, I don't know if I can fix that. That's going to be the challenge. But that's definitely one of my more memorable times with a client because I remember you at the Tahoe Rim Trail 100, I think it was two years ago, and you said, I want to try to do the Red House Loop. And it was like, man, that's why you got to pick that one for your first <laughs> time by yourself in the middle of the night. Like... Could you make it any harder? Like, did you want to carry a hundred pound bag with you? But I knew you were ready. And I just remember you coming up and you were beaming with pride and like, just, you could just tell that that was, that was a moment for you where running was going to change. Who knows where it's going? Right. But you've since run multiple 50 Ks. You have trained for a year and a half now. And yeah, seeing you able to do that. And then with any client, it's that moment when they realize, I never really thought I was gonna be able to do this, but I just did it. And we have a, we have a friend, Tony, who just completed one and, and that was, a huge ordeal. I mean, all of these are any yeah. any running events an ordeal. Yeah. I don't care how long it is. Yeah, it's far. Isn't that true? Oh yeah, yeah. But I every time I I get a new athlete that's running, especially if they want to run the hundred mile distance, it's I can pretty much tell you how the first conversation is going to go. Yeah, I want to run this race and I want to do it in twenty four hours. Okay, what is your knowledge about how that's going to work. Well, it's 14 minutes and 37 seconds or whatever it is a mile. And I can do that for 24 hours. It's like, okay, this is, <laughs> this is how everybody thinks about it. And it's not that simple, no. you know? And, and you, you have a, a holistic approach to running. I think that is probably one of the most incredible things I've found out about your style and how you teach things. It's, not just the running. No. You see people's families. I mean, we've all been through it, right? Every, there's no surprises in this world. Once you take a lot of time to do something, something's got to give. Yeah. It, you know? And so I love that holistic approach you have. Yeah. And what I mean by that is it's the entire person. You care just as much about me as you do my wife. Yeah. And you know that when we're training for something big, you're not even training me. You're, you're actually... Diane's a to, huge part of it. You have to condition the family for what they're going to go through right. as right. well. And not a lot of people yeah. do that. That's a, that's, no. a very, that's a very cool thing. 
Do you think that one of the things that makes you so, I guess, sensitive to that stuff, was that from your past? Is that from? That was from my marriage. From your marriage? Yeah. My wife was, uh, she supported me a, a ton with this. But being the person I am, I went head first and I spent all my time doing it. And pretty quickly she was like, hey, I really want you to do this, but I do need some time left for myself and you. Because you are like, you know, I think at that time I was, we were boyfriend, girlfriend at that time, I think. And I never thought about that. I mean, I just was like, oh, I guess you're not out here with me. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. And, and some of the things I never thought of was I'd get done with a run. You know, you go do a, a really hard 20 miler and then you get home and it's not like you can just hop in the shower and then 20 minutes later, you're like, let's go to the mall and walk. Yeah. Ta-da. Like, especially back then, I didn't know how to run training runs easy. So I would go as hard as I possibly could and bury myself at the end for the last five miles. And then I was a wreck for five or six hours. And by the time you get home and do that, and you're over it, it's six o'clock. So the whole day is essentially wasted on, not wasted, but it's been spent with running or the recovery from running. And now all of a sudden that Saturday that the spouse had didn't, doesn't have it. And, and she just sat down with me and it became, okay, what would you like me to do? And then I'll plan my running around it and we'll see if that can work. And I think usually that's the most important thing is letting the spouse know like, hey, yeah. you're giving up a lot too, so yeah. how can I help? Yeah. And in our particular agreement was she wanted to be home by 11 a.m. and wanted me to be ready to do whatever we needed to do that day by like about one. It's like, okay, I'll get up at three and go out, run by myself and and we'll do it. And then And then it opened me up so that when there were like group runs that were at a special place, like if we went into California in the winter, she was okay with that because it was one Saturday out of every couple instead of every single day and And the grind, you know, and and the grind because ultra running is a grind. Yeah. It doesn't happen by accident and you put a lot of time and effort into it over months, you know, eight, nine months. So that's, that's where that originated from. And then I was fortunate enough, my first five or six hundred mile athletes, huh, they had the same exact problem. And it, beca- it was so clear to me, I'm sitting there going, oh, this is not gonna work. <laughs> and, yeah. and then I would say after every hundred miler, hey, you have to go back to your spouse. And it's not a guy or girl thing. It's just the non-runner, yeah. right? You got to go back to him and say, "I'm, I'm gonna do whatever you need me to do. You go, you you go get to go do the things now, and I'll take care of the responsibilities yeah. for a while and make up for it." Yeah. And that usually lets you off the hook. Yeah. And then next running season starts, and it's like, "Yeah, that's fine." They're usually tired of you anyway by that point. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it's just when you, you know, it's what what happens so much in this sport is you you do it once and you're like oh, I I just want to keep doing it. And you've worked so hard to get to that fitness, you don't want to lose it. And you think if I take a month off or if I, even if I take a couple of months off, which most people don't actually 
stop running for three months. They just may not go out on the weekends, but they'll yeah. still run a little bit during the week. That's still going to keep your fitness. I mean, it's, it's not going to be your peak fitness, but you won't be starting from scratch. Right. But we just get stuck in this, you know, perpetual wheel of, oh, I'm done with this. What's the next one? Well, I'll be recovered in a month, so let's pick something two months from now. And then the next one, well, let's go two more months. And then all of a sudden you're doing races every couple of months, and that just becomes time that you've, you've lost with, with everybody. Yeah. You know? And so we just try to caution people. Yeah. It's a pretty amazing thing that when you ask me to, what we're going to do, or I, I let you know what I want to do, it's just not a yes, let's go do it. It's okay. We got, we got seven other things here we need to really think about and work through. And that's just priceless because yeah. it does show how much you actually care. And I, I know there's some big things coming with day fit and I know you have some plans in the works and you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm expanding my online presence, I guess. So I've, I've Mr. Technology uh, that you uh, are. I'm, yeah, I know. I, <sighs> the kids have gotten off my lawn and I've had to learn how to <laughs> do the things. So I have a strength training app now that can allow people to work out, not with me, but have me plan their workouts anywhere as long as they've got an internet connection. And I'm, you know, for a long time, I've kept my run coaching at a level of about four or five people because I never wanted it to be work. I'm, I love doing it so much that I wanted to just be able to handpick people and, and help people that I knew were going to put in the work. Be, at the beginning of this year, I just finally realized this is my passion. And I want, I'm going to be part of running ultras the rest of my life. It may just be volunteering. I don't know how much longer my body's going to hold up doing the really long stuff. It's been a long time since I've done a long race, but I'm going to do another one. It's just a matter of time. That's I will right. figure it out. That's right. But for the last seven years, I haven't run consistently because of injuries. You know, COVID destroyed my business. Like everything I'd worked up to, you know, gym shut down. Well, that was my paycheck. We didn't have running races. That was my paycheck. I didn't have any online type of thing. So I didn't have a paycheck. And then I had to start from scratch when gyms finally did open up again. And I'd lost a lot of people. And, and so I'd sort of dabbled last year into taking people that I didn't know that I didn't know, number one, but also who were maybe not your typical 100-mile athlete who maybe hadn't put very much time into the sport, so they really didn't know what the, the commitment level was. And I realized I really liked teaching them. And, uh, you know, I, that's one thing I've had to get over is up until last year, I had a 100% success rate in ultras coaching. And I didn't do so well last year in that regard. And it was really hard because I just, again, like I said, I associate performance with success so much. And I had to realize that I can show you how to do it. And if you do what I tell you, you have a really good chance of finishing. But as the saying goes, you can lead a horse to water. 
but I can't make you do all this stuff. And those days when you've got 20 miles on, on the calendar and it ends up being 10, that day isn't a big deal, but when you stack that upon mm -hmm. other days and then all of a sudden it's a couple months of those days, then it's a big deal. And so I was successful at the beginning of the year of looking at it and disassociating like, no, I, I know this works. And I know I have a specific niche that I'm looking for. You know, it's, it's people who want to learn how to do this. If you just want me to tell you how to do everything and to do it for you, that you may not be the one that I'm looking for. I will do that, but it's going to be expensive because now you're asking me to be like everything for you and call you when you're not running like, hey, why aren't you doing this? You need to get out there, be the motivator every day. And like, if you want me to do all that, I'll try and do that, but that's going to be really expensive. But the people who want to learn how to do this so that the, the biggest reason is when you're out there on in your ultra, you, you can't call me and be like, this is happening. What do I do? But if I can teach you all that, you know how to do it yourself. Like, remember when we were in, in Avalon Catalina and, and Catalina and I'm a wreck. I can't I can't go five feet without my muscles spasming. And you're telling me what to do because I trained it into you and I'm not thinking clearly. And I'm like, I don't know. Should I drink water? Should I drink salt? And you're like, well, you do these three things. And I'm like, yeah, that's a really good idea. You know? And, and we know, finished. And we finished, you know? And there's, if you know what to do when you're out there, you can work through the problems. Like ultra running is about making great decisions, eating and drinking and training and you have to be able to do all of those things and the training is the only one that you get to control in kind of your own lab which is your backyard all the other things that's what you got to do on race day and you don't really get to train that very often because when you go out running in a group you see somebody take a gel it's like oh it's time to eat you're not thinking now i'm eating or somebody starts drinking well then you just start drinking it's kind of group think but when you're out there by yourself and I've done this many times and it's like, oh, I'm four hours into a run. I have all my hydration still on my body instead of in my body. And I haven't taken any food. Those, how do you get out of that? Hey there, coach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. So do you, so you've developed some packages? Yeah, I have some packages. And another thing that's really exciting is I'm going to a, an ultra coaching summit in Colorado in September. And that's going to be really awesome because there's going to be so much science involved. And, you know, our sport really hasn't had, you know, as money is coming in, science is also now and studies are coming in. And yeah. I'm going to actually get, there's an artistic part to coaching, which is mainly what it's been. And now there's going to be like tangible, you know, yeah. evidence-driven right. decision-making that I'm super excited about. So, yeah. but yeah, so I have, you know, I have a number of different packages and they range from, you know, $150 a month to up to 500, depending on what you're looking for. And I'm taking, taking people now and we're trying to get ready for the second half of the year. And then I have a good slate of people that are signed up for next year. And yeah, I'm super excited to become a full-time 
ultra marathon coach? I was a, kind of a mess. I had some weaknesses and strength weaknesses mostly. And there are some things I have gone through that because I was strong, I was yeah. much more adapt to getting over any injury and learning how to do the things you need to do during the run, after the run, before the run. Yeah. So I would, I just am such a believer in your system. Yeah, I'm really excited to be able to have a platform now where I can merge, yeah. you know, my two loves, which is, I mean, I love picking up heavy things and moving them somewhere. <laughs> and I love yep. really running yep. very far whenever so, we are at an aid station. It's like, oh, that looks heavy. Brandon. Yeah, Brandon. <laughs> a couple more questions. I know we're, we're running here short okay. on time. So one of the questions I have for you is a lot of the times when we talk about identity, and your identity as a competitor and things you've gone through have made you who you are today and it's still evolving and growing and so exciting to watch. I have more fun watching, that's what I'm passionate about, yeah. is people and the lights come on and they, they start to see, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm bent this way, I do things certain ways. And I have a spiritual standpoint of that. I think it's God and I'm, sure. I'm totally 100% believe that my identity comes from that. But I always like to ask people that I interview about that. Do you do you have? Is there a spiritual side to this that you ever looked at, or are you still in, are you still searching? What do you, what do you think about that? I think there's. I do have a spirit. I have more of a spiritual side now than I did growing up. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what being I believe in necessarily, but I do believe that I have finally admitted that I am probably not in control of everything I'd like to be in control of <laughs> and that there is probably a higher power out there that has a little more control than I do. And I probably do need to acknowledge that a little bit, but I'm still, I'm still going to try and take that control back, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, I get it. <laughs> it's, it's very, it, I love asking that question because it is amazing how, and the, as the older we get, we, we see more and more things. It just, there's something bigger out there, right? It's yeah. just always, like, I've believed for a long time, but it, I'm still always in awe of, especially other people's stories and how they evolve. And yeah. I'm excited that you are embracing it all. Like, you're taking it in this last five years, just watching you. We've kind of grown up. The last five years kind of oh, grown yeah. up together. It's kind of been so fun. The last question I have for you is, what is your definition of success? Before I was 40, it mostly revolved around how much money I made and what things I was capable of doing. And, and family. Like, I think having a good relationship with your family is, is important for that. But I think since then... I still think that you, my, there is an amount of money that one needs to have things and to not suffer. So I, there is still a money component to it. But for me, success is, is more, am I capable of leading my life joyfully and helping bring out the best in others? And can I do that while still tending to my own needs and bring out the best in myself? I have not quite figured out that balance. As we all know from 
hate stationing. I, get, I definitely am so focused on things. It's not just on other people. When I start focusing on myself, that's all I see. I don't, there's just this little cone of light in front of me, like a headlamp at night. That's all I see. And if it's on you, it's awesome for you. <laughs> if it's on me, it's awesome for me. It's just not awesome for anybody else because <laughs> I'm a little limited in that capability. And so trying to, you know, success for me is going to be mastering that. Being able to be there for the people that I love, but take care of myself the way that I deserve to be yeah. taken care of. And I know from the talks that we've had, you are someone who gives all of yourself, which doesn't leave much for you at times. Yeah. That's a wonderful discovery. Yeah. You know, I just want to thank you for the time today. Absolutely. You it's know, been wonderful. I know that, you know, we spend a lot of time on the trail and it's just like you become brothers. It's just no doubt about it. Almost blood brothers. You you go through life and you talk about things and yeah. you've helped me incredible amounts. I can't even begin to think some of the things I've learned, the heart that you have for me and my success and my family. And how can people get a hold of you and DayFit? Easiest way is go to DayFit.com. That's D-E-Y-F-I-T.com. You can just tap on the book it or connect with me buttons. Email address will come up. The email address is B-D-E-Y at DayFit.com. And yeah, I would love to love to work with more people and show them what they're capable of. So <laughs> thank you, my friend. Thank and you, Ken. I appreciate it. it was, this is a blast. Awesome. Thank you, Brandon, for sharing your story with us. I am so grateful for everything that you have done for me and my journey. Brandon loves to watch people achieve their goals and dreams. A big takeaway for me was how Brandon linked taking care of others in his past to being good at taking care of people now and how that became part of what he does for a living. He made his passion of running and helping people achieve their goals into a career. Thank you for listening to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast. If you want more of this or want to learn more about my community, go to endurancelead.com. Until next time, this is the Endurance Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you found this podcast inspiring, please follow the pod and leave a comment.